Well, hey, New City, glad to be with you again on another Sunday online. It's hard to believe it has almost been three months since we have been able to gather together. And although we don't quite yet have a date for you about when we're going to return, we should have that soon, and I can't wait to be able to do that. But until then, we're going to dive into today, to today's message. I want to begin by sharing a story with you of a time that I barely escaped getting into a lot of trouble. Like me, when you were a child, you probably have a lot of these close call moments yourself, but this one happened when I was in middle school, I think around the age of 11-ish years old. I was sleeping over at my friend's house. The next day, we were going with his grandparents down to Atlanta to go to a couple of Atlanta Braves baseball games, so we were really excited about that. We were spending the night. One of our other friends also slept over, and at about midnight, uh, we decided to go outside. My friend in our neighborhood lived in a cul-de-sac. We went outside, out of the cul-de-sac, onto the main road outside of our neighborhood and decided to throw the baseball under the streetlights. So we weren't necessarily doing anything wrong other than maybe being out too late. And every time a car would drive by every once in a while, we would run to either side of the road, whatever we were closer to, either to these bushes or on top of a hill and kind of duck and wait for the car to leave. And then we'd go back out and throw the baseball again. Well, one of these times, the, about 300 yards away, there was a stoplight. I saw some headlights coming. And so we ran to our prospective areas to hide. Me and my friend were in a bush. We're hiding in some bushes. And our other friend was on the other side of the street, hiding kind of on top of the hill. And as we're sitting there, all of a sudden, I see these blue flashing lights, to which I'm like, that's a cop. And so I book it into the backyard uh, behind the, the, where the bushes were. And sure enough, it was a police car. And so we run into my friend's house. Now, we're, we're running into our friend's house. The cop stops because we can kind of see it even though we're in a cul-de-sac. We can kind of see through the bushes to the main road where the cop had got out of his car and was walking around. Now, you would think at that point we're safe, we're inside. The only problem is our other friend was on the other side of the road. And we did not know what was going to happen to him because if we got in trouble and if he got caught, my parents would have absolutely killed me. And so we're in the house, the cop leaves, and we're thinking, okay, everything is good. My friend runs across the street. He runs into the bushes. He's in the backyard of the house that's kind of facing where we are. When all of a sudden the cop has turned into the neighborhood and is coming down the cul-de-sac to where you know the house was. And so we're freaking out. I wake up my friend's brother who was sleeping on the couch in the living room. I'm like, hey, wake up. There's a cop coming. We're just going to lay down like on the floor like we're sweet sleeping in case he like sees something. So clearly it wasn't us. The cop is going super slow. He has this massive floodlight on top of his car and he kind of shines it all through the, the cul-de-sac. He doesn't stop luckily and drives away. As he drives away, our friend who was outside still hiding in the neighbor's backyard runs into the house and we're safe. Now I share that story because although we weren't necessarily breaking a law, I don't think, uh, when, my, it, when and if my parents found out what I was doing, I would have died. I would have been in so much trouble but yet we got away. We got away. Now, like many stories that you might have from when you were a kid, uh, unlike these situations where we can run away from suffering and avoid whatever punishment or whatever uh, uncomfortableness might come from what we did, life doesn't work like that, right? Life doesn't work like that. And in fact, right now, a lot of us are suffering in various different ways, whether from the effects of the coronavirus and all that's bringing, the racial injustices and the tensions and just the, the brokenheartedness that that is revealing, or personal things that you or I may be going through, we know that we can't run from suffering. We have to deal with it. And so this morning, we're looking at this question. How can we suffer well? How can we face difficulties, heartache, uh, depression, things when, when life looks absolutely bleak and dark? How can we face suffering well? 
That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so we'll be in Revelation chapter 2. We are finishing, or sorry, continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, last week, we started what we're going to continue this week. If you have any questions as we, can, as we dive into the book of Revelation, you can text them to 919-800-0525. You'll see that number pop up a few times on your screen during the sermon. And then tonight on Facebook Live, I'll do my best to answer any questions that you might text in. So feel free to text those in, and we'll answer those later this evening. Now, some background. For where we are, the book of Revelation is written by John, who is the disciple of Jesus. At this point, he is, he's old, near the end of his life. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos and receives a series of visions from Jesus himself. And some of the things concerning uh, what's happening now and some things concerning when Jesus is going to return. This letter is addressed to seven churches in, West, or in the Asian part of Rome, which is Western Turkey at this time. And in chapter 2 and 3, we're seeing specific uh, practical ad- addresses to these seven churches. Last week was the church of Ephesus. Today, we're the second church in the book of Revelation that is spoken to. We are talking about the church of Smyrna. Now, some background of Smyrna and the city of Smyrna that, that uh, John through Jesus is addressing in this letter. Um, Smyrna was destroyed in 600 BC. Uh, it was a massive city until then, and then it was rebuilt again in 290 BC into another big city. Uh, it, it rivaled Ephesus in the Asian part of the Roman Empire to be the biggest and the most prestigious city in the empire. Uh, It was one of the greatest cities in the region, and it was also a harbor city. Um, It was known as the city that had died and come back to life because it was destroyed and then rebuilt. Uh, In fact, Homer, who you might be familiar with, he is the Greek poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. He was born in Smyrna. And some context here, again, Jesus is revealing things to John. And side note, uh, there's a lot here. So we're only going to be reading, what, three or four verses this morning in Revelation. And so there's not a lot of words, you could say, but there's a lot of confusing and interesting things. And what we need to remember when we read books like Revelation or things in Scripture that can be confusing, while it's really important and I think interesting and we should be encouraged to learn as much as we can about what's going on in the context— We have to remember that it's not just about information, that we want God's Word to transform us. And so I'm going to do my best to briefly explain some of the confusing parts, but we're going to keep going because what we're after is not just information transfer, we're after a transformation of our hearts. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8, starting verse 8, here's what it says. Uh, Write to the church, or sorry, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came back to life. So when he says, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, again, he says, write to the angel to each of the churches. It could be, he says, write this to the pastor or the messenger of the church. It could be that there are literal angels that are guiding these churches. But while those are possibilities, they're highly unlikely. What seems to be he's saying here is when he says, write to the angel of the church, he's saying, write to the spirit of the church, write to the believers in the church of Smyrna and tell them this. Now, he says, thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and come back to life. In Revelation chapter 1, John is trying the best that he can to describe Jesus and how he has seen him. And in each of these addresses to the churches, he takes some of that vision as the uh, person who is giving him this revelation. And so here, he says the first and the last. Uh, This is one of the ways that Jesus has described himself. And of course, uh, it is is, uh, particularly relevant, especially when he says the, the one who is dead and come back to life, referring to Jesus' death 
death, a burial, and resurrection because he's writing to a city that was known to have died and come back to life. So again, he's saying this is coming from Jesus. And it's important to remember who Jesus was and is given the situation at hand because they're in a tough spot. It says this in verse 9. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. So in the first part of verse 9, he says, I know that your affliction and poverty but you are rich. What is he talking about there? Affliction, the word for affliction there, it gives the connotation of serious trouble or a burden that crushes, that they're in a difficult spot. As we will see, uh, they have experienced some and will continue to experience in the future uh, real suffering as followers of Jesus. And in fact, John is writing this letter as someone who knows what it's like to suffer. He had been tortured. He had survived. At this point in his life, he was exiled away from his family, away from his friends. He has suffered for Jesus, and so have they. And so he says, you've suffered affliction, and you are even experienced poverty, or experiencing poverty, but you are rich. Now, what does he mean by that? Here, here's kind of a, some historical context of what's going on. Uh, many of the Christians that he is writing to were living in real physical poverty. The question is why. It's not simply that, they, that, that some of them might have been poor when they started following Jesus and so they stayed poor, but because they were Christians, they actually could have uh, been subjected to things that would, would have been made them more likely to experience poverty than if they weren't a Christian. So for example, at this point in Roman history, Christianity was not a legal religion. It was not legally permitted. It was different uh, than Judaism. At some point, at some parts in Roman history, uh, the Jews made up up to 10% of the Roman Empire. And as such, as a large minority, they were given certain uh, exemptions, if you will, to practice their religion and withhold from uh, practicing many of the civic duties of sacrificing and worshiping the Roman gods. And so they were allowed to do this without any kind of uh, persecution or any sort of legal repercussions. But Christians were not given those same protections. And so some Jews and even some non-Christians could essentially inform on Christians if they didn't like something they did or something they said, and it could have gotten them in trouble. In the same way, many Christians were, were uh, unable to join certain trade guilds at that point in time. Uh, if you were a carpenter or if you dyed wool or if you had certain, whatever your trade was, there were uh, many times in many places there were guilds that you were a part of that were, that were groups of people that you would meet with weekly, that you would build relationships with, that would help you run your business. The problem is these guilds all centered around what normal Roman life centered around, which was the uh, worshiping of the deities of the Roman Empire and the local deities. And so many Christians had to withdraw themselves because they didn't want to take part in false worship of different deities. And so that hurt them majorly economically. And so they have poverty that they're dealing with and they have persecution. In fact, we know in 155 AD, roughly 60-ish years after Paul writes this letter, uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, he trained under John who wrote this letter. He was a bishop of Smyrna, was actually martyred for being a follower of Jesus in 155 AD. So they have physical persecution. They are experiencing poverty for being a Christian and yet they are rich. How is that possible? It reminds us of what James says in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. James writes this. It says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation. No, I'm missing something. That's what it was. I had my two papers out of order. I was confused. Okay. Try it again. Here's what it says. 
And here's what it says in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his, ex- in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. What he is saying here, of course, James' context is a little different, but James is talking to both Christians that are well-off and those that aren't, and he's saying this, that if you are a rich Christian, if life is going well for you, if you have money or at least prestige or at least you're not experiencing persecution and things are going well for you, you ought to think about your low position in Christ, and if you are experiencing poverty like the church in Smyrna was, you ought to experience, your, you ought to think about your high position in Christ. And here's what this means. That Christian identity says that you're a sinner and would go to hell if not for Jesus, right? God is perfect and righteous and just and holy, and we are not left to ourselves. We cannot make up for the sins that we have committed against God, and so we can't save ourselves. And what James is saying here is that those that are doing well financially or doing well in life need to remember your low position, that you cannot buy God's, uh, God's favor, that you cannot earn your status before Jesus. You need to remember that you are loved and accepted and cared for by God, and it is God and not you that grants yourself salvation. That if you're rich and things are going well, you need to remember your low position and your dependence on Christ. And if you're poor, like the church in Smyrna, you need to look at, look at what it means to be in Christ. You need to remember that even though you've always been told that you are nothing, even though you may have even been experiencing persecution for, Christian, or for being a Christian, you need to dwell on your high position in Christ, that you get all the inheritance and blessings and the righteousness of God, and that when you enter into God's kingdom, everything, all of your longings and desires will be met and fulfilled in Christ. And so if you're rich and well off, you need to remember your low position. And if you're a sinner, or sorry, if you're poor and things are not going well for you, you need to remember what God has offered and what is coming to you. You see, Christian identity doesn't exclude people and instead is the great equalizer. It takes all of the pressure off because no matter who you are, there is no identity like the one you can find in Jesus, that he has given you grace and mercy and love, that he is over everything, and he has equaled the playing field so that anyone can trust and follow in him and receive experience salvation no matter what you have done or what has been done to you. It kind of reminds me of the funny uh, story of two brothers who were, uh, let's just say, not very good. They lived in a town. Nobody liked them. They did a lot of terrible things. And one day, one of the brothers passes away quite suddenly. And so the surviving brother uh, goes to... um, he goes to the pastor and he's asked the pastor to do the wedding. And he says, or sorry, do the funeral. And he says, when you do my brother's eulogy, I will give you whatever you want. Please just say that my brother was a saint. And so the pastor's sitting there and thinking, well, he's not a saint, but at the same time, our church could really use the money. So he takes a second. He says, you know what? I'll do it. The day of the funeral comes, and as he's giving the eulogy of this man, he says, as you all know, this man was a despicable person. He was a liar, he was a cheater, he was an abuser, he was an adulterer, and he was a thief. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Right? Compared to his brother, he was a saint. What is happening here is that so often in our life, we feel like we've got to play the comparison game or we feel like we have to earn our way to God. And in fact, what we see is that in Christ, your identity is given, not earned. 
In Christ, your identity is given to you. No matter what has been done to you or no matter what you have done, it has been given to you and it is not earned. The gospel is that if you are well off, again, you need to remember that you actually need Jesus. You need Jesus. And if things are not going well for you, you need to remember all the riches that God has in store for those who love him. The gospel is not about what you do or about what's been done to you. It's about what Christ has done for us, which is why here at New City Church, we often say that if you are in Christ and if you are a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. Why? Because Christ has given the identity that you and I are so, so often striving for. Acceptance, love, being told that we're worth it and that we're valuable and that we matter. All of that is given to us by Christ and what he has done for us. And void of Jesus, if we reject Jesus and do not know and trust and follow in Jesus, then we have everything to prove and everything to everyone to impress. But the identity that Christ gives us it doesn't, is not earned, it is given, and it says that you are loved and you are accepted and you are cared for. So even though the Smyrnan uh, Christians are experiencing persecution and difficulty and life is not going well for them, they ought to remember that they are rich in Christ and in the blessings and in the future they have in store in his kingdom. So again, verse 9, he says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So what's happening here is that Jesus, when he talks about Jews in the synagogue of Satan, this verse, chapter or verse 9, has actually been used throughout history uh, by white supremacists, as well as people trying to uh, promote anti-Semitic ideas, right? Because it seems to be pretty anti-Jewish here. Now, of course, that's not what is going on here. And so the question is, what is happening? What is actually going on in this situation? Let me give you as quick as I can some context for us to understand what John is writing. Uh, We need to remember that in the first century and even into the early second century, uh, Christians actually identified as Jewish. They claimed to be Jews because they have, again, a Jewish origin, and they would say that they were the true converts to Judaism because Judaism found its culmination in the Messiah Jesus, of which they are now following. Now, uh, to the outside world, to those that were not Jews or Christians, they looked the same, right? The Jews and Christians both were monotheistic. Uh, They both had a pretty radical sexual ethic. Uh, They both had a lot of, of values that they both emulated and pursued. However, Christians, of course, differed from traditional Jews in that they worshiped Jesus and obeyed him, and they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Mosaic laws, and that the Mosaic law was no longer binding on them. And so uh, Jews didn't like Christians because they rejected Jesus, but Christians regarded Jews as apostate, which is a fancy way of saying as somebody who had left the faith because they are rejecting the Messiah, who was the culmination of the people of Israel. And what seems to be happening historically is that it appears that Jewish leaders in Smyrna uh, denounce Christians as not really Jewish, right? They're saying, well, no, you follow Jesus and we don't. And so you're not actually traditionally Jewish like we are. And so, like we said earlier, because they were not uh, traditionally Jewish, uh, they did not receive the exemptions and the safeguards that Jews did in the Roman Empire. And so it is actually not surprising that Jewish Christians would then respond uh, by saying that the traditional Jews are the ones who have cut themselves off from God's people because they have rejected the Messiah 
that he has given us. And so there's this, deten- this, this tension between traditional Jews saying, you're not actually Jewish, and Christians saying, oh no, we are actually Jewish. We are the fulfillment of everything that has been happening up until this point. And so it is actually the Christians who are fighting back against the Jews by saying that traditional Jews are actually not the people of God. They're saying, actually, we are because we have accepted Jesus. And in fact, those that do not accept Jesus, those that have rejected Jesus, are the synagogue of Satan. Now, why would they use that terminology? Uh, Because Satan, all throughout Scripture, is predominantly referred to and is known as an accuser. Right? And so this, this statement is meant to be shocking. And what they're saying here is that Christians are being accused in Smyrna of not really being, Jesus, uh, uh, being Jews or not really uh, following Jesus. And, and, the, and the Christians are actually saying, no, 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 we actually are the true Jews. We are actually the real ones uh, that are following God because we have accepted his son. Now, I know that's confusing, but that's a little bit of kind of background about what's going on. But we'll continue in verse 10. And so here's what he says that they should do, knowing that they have accusations coming their way as Christians, it says this, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. What's happening here is he's saying, do not be afraid, even though you will suffer, some of you will be imprisoned, and some of you will even ultimately be killed. He's saying, you are going to be tested for 10 days. Now, this 10 days is supposed to be read as a a symbolic hyperlink, if you will, all the way back to Daniel chapter 1, if you're familiar with Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken into exile into Babylon with a lot of other young men of their age, and they're pretty much put into a program to kind of be indoctrinated with Babylonian beliefs and to kind of try to get the Jewish people that they had just conquered to assimilate into Babylonian culture. Now, part of the regiment that they were a part of included eating food that wasn't kosher, right? The eating food that went against their dietary kind of beliefs and as, as Jews, things that they did didn't want to eat. And so they approached essentially the person who was running their program and said, hey, we don't want to eat this food. Let us eat vegetable, just vegetables for 10 days. And after 10 days, you can see if we are in a better physical position than our counterparts. The person agrees. And so for 10 days, they eat nothing but vegetables. After 10 days, they come back. They are inspected, if you will, and they are told that they can continue uh, kind of on their diet because they are in good physical condition. What John is saying here is that they were tested and that they trusted God and God was with them. What he's saying to them is that no matter what happens, even if some of you, for some of you, this, this ends up being execution or martyrdom, be faithful so that you can receive the crown of life. He's saying God, not Satan, will have the final word. And so these 10 days are symbolic to say, just like they were tested, you will be tested, but hold fast no matter what may happen to you, because God will have the final word. Again, in James chapter 1, verse 12, it brings up this verse, and here's what James says. He says, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
He's saying endure. Why? Because you will receive the crown of life. It's the same thing that John is saying in Revelation. Now, the crown here is not meant to be seen as a royal crown, but instead as a a victory wreath that you would win or you would get for performing well in any sort of athletic games. And in Smyrna's cases, this was relevant because a lot of games were held in Smyrna. And so it was particularly appropriate. And what he's saying there, what we also see from from the verse in James is this. That endurance is a necessary part of following Christ. Endurance is a necessary part of following Christ. Uh, A pastor and theologian who passed away recently, uh, Eugene Peterson, explained uh, endurance is this way. He would say that endurance is long obedience in the same direction. Even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, sometimes you you might fall off track, but you want to endure. Long obedience in the same direction, that is what endurance is. And this is what it means to follow Christ, that sometimes things will be hard and be difficult, but endure because you have a great reward waiting for you. And I think all of us have been in situations in our life where we've had to endure. I can remember uh, a little over a year ago when I was in Guatemala with a team here from New City with our partner church there in Los Chalitos. It is an extremely poor and rural village on the mountainous area, a mountainous area in Guatemala. And so we're there, uh, and Mitch and Amanda are the missionaries who planted the church in, Gua- in Los Chilitos many years ago, and there's an amazing work that is happening, and they've partnered with Cayetano. Him and his family have, are essentially kind of like the home base when mission groups come uh, and, and stay in, Lo- in, in Guatemala. During the day, we spend the entire day in Los Chilitos, and so we're able to kind of leave a cooler of snacks and, and our lunch and that sort of thing. And Cayetano is training to be a pastor, and he will one day take over the church um, in Los Chilitos. And so on the last day, a Cayetano, who is a, is a farmer, he farms corn, invites us to go to his field. Now, we were only the second group that he's ever taken to his field because uh, he doesn't really take people there. And, and depending on the season, uh, it could act, you could actually be killed as a white person going into places where they might not want you to go, but it wasn't harvest season and we were safe. And so we, we went to see one of his cornfields. Now, the thing is, uh, his cornfield was about a mile walk from, his, from where he lived. And it was all downhill. Again, it's mountainous, and so it's all downhill, which makes for a very enjoyable walk to the cornfield, but not a very fun one coming back. And so we spent some time there, his cornfield, we're seeing how they do everything. And as we were going to leave, uh, they told us to take a, a, a log back with us to the house. And so in, in the mountainous region, there are trees everywhere, but you're not allowed to cut down any trees unless it is on your property. And of course, they use firewood for everything. And so as we're leaving, we all take a branch or a log off of one of the trees that have been cut down. And I go to the tree and I, I pick up a log and I'm like, you know, this is kind of heavy, but it's not that heavy. And they, I know they need firewood. So I'm going to pick up a harder one. Terrible decision. And so we're walking back. And it was, no joke, one of the hardest things I've done in my life. Adam, who was on staff here, he was the first one back. He didn't take any breaks because he was like, this is awful. He wanted to be done as quick as he could. I was with the second group. And a man, like every three to five minutes, we had to stop. It was hot. You're going uphill. You've got this heavy log on your shoulder. You're trying to get there. By the time we got back to the house, I was dizzy. I was dehydrated. I was about to pass out. It was the worst thing ever. And so we're sitting there in the house. We're all sweating. I'm miserable. And a few minutes later, uh, Cayetano's wife comes back. Uh, She had left after us, and she was carrying a log on her head. And she comes back to the house, drops the log down, and continues working like nothing ever happened. And meanwhile, Adam, who is a better human being than I am, offered to go back a second time, if they wanted us to, to get more firewood, to which I responded, I'm not doing it. Like, I, I can't do it, 
right? Why? Because it was hard and it was difficult for us. But Gaetano's wife, who had done this for uh, her entire life, she's in mid-40s, if not 50 at this point, goes a mile up and down a mountain with a heavy log on her head like it was nothing. Why? Because she has learned to endure. She's experienced this. She's done it a lot. And so she was able to, exper- uh, to face difficulties and hardships with a, a lot more strength and endurance than I was. And it goes back uh, to what we're saying here in Re- Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. Here is how it ends. It says this. And so it says, because the crown of life is coming to those who are endure and who are faithful, he says, let anyone who he has ears to hear, listen what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. What he's saying is that those in Christ do not have to fear the second death. The second death here is reference to when Jesus returns again, judges all evil, the heavens and the earth, and those who are in God's kingdom that have experienced the grace and mercy of God uh, get to go into God's kingdom, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done. He's saying you are facing extremely difficult times, but you need to take heart because God is over everything and you will be spared the punishment you deserve because of the grace that God has for you. Life is hard right now, but it it pales into comparison to the greatness that you will experience in God's kingdom. They will be, be spared from what John writes in Revelation chapter 20. I want to read Three verses, Revelation chapter 20, verses four through six. In chapter 20 of Revelation, it's the most controversial uh, text in all of Revelation. It's talking about the return of Jesus and what it's gonna look like and there's symbolism and you're like, what in the world's going on? But here's what's happening. I'll just read a couple of verses. It says this, John says, then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now there's a lot of confusing things. What's the thousand years? What's it going to look like? The point is this, that those who believe in the burial, death, and resurrection, who have experienced the grace of God in this life and have trusted in him, will not participate in the second death. They will not be judged. They will not be uh, exposed or given, thrown away from God's image, that they will reign with him forever. And this is what the emphasis is on in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, that the second death that those in Christ will reign in victory. And this would encourage those and even us today who are experiencing suffering, that even though life is hard, this isn't the end and that there is hope and grace for those that are in Christ, which really leads to this, especially today with all that is going on uh, with the the impacts of COVID-19 to the racial injustices that are being brought to light uh, to many, for many of us. And we're trying to figure out what does it look like to love people well in this and to walk and to listen. Here's what we need to remember, that evil doesn't win. Evil doesn't win. And so the question is, how do we respond to suffering knowing that evil doesn't win? How do we respond to suffering? Because although it's good to know that one day Christ will right every wrong, that doesn't take away the the difficulty of experienced suffering now. 
Here's one way you could look at it. Think of it like watching maybe if you ever watch a show for the second or third time, or even maybe a better example is if you watch a rerun of a sporting event, right? Right now, there's no sports, and so there's been times where I've watched part of a, an old game that is on TV, and even though I know who's going to win, I know what's going to happen, as you're watching it, you're still, kind of, you're still kind of mesmerized by the whole thing, right? You know what's going to happen, but you're still impacted by it. You're still drawn in. And the same is true for us. Although we're experiencing suffering and hardships now, we're still impacted by it, but we know what happens in the end. And in fact, suffering can be helpful to us. Craig Keener, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, puts it this way. He says, suffering has a way of reminding us which things in life really matter, forcing us to depend radically on God and thus purifying our obedience to God's will that suffering actually shows us what's really important. And because we know that God will one day right every wrong, the question for us is, what does it look like for you and for me, for those of us that are followers of Christ, to play at least a small role now in what God will ultimately do? What does it look like for you and for me to play a small role in standing up against racial injustice, to play a small role in listening to those who are grieving and, 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 and asking how we can be of help and asking how we can learn? What does it look like for us to love Jesus and love people? Last week, we saw that right belief always leads to love. And if evil doesn't win and Jesus will one day right every wrong, again, what does it look like for us to proactively listen to those who are hurting, grieve with those who are grieving, and play a small role in that now of fighting against evil and darkness of which Christ will one day completely wipe out. Again, evil doesn't Win. And the invitation for those who are in Christ is to play a part in eradicating and in fighting against that evil. My hope and my prayer for our church at this time is that we would be a people who love Jesus. And how do we love Jesus? By the fruit of how we love others shows whether or not we're going to trust and believe and follow Jesus. Evil doesn't win. Jesus does, and he is inviting us to follow him, to trust in him, and to partake in his victory that will one day come to its conclusion, but now for you and I to taste and see at least a part of what Christ will one day do. Suffering is hard. Suffering is difficult. Suffering is something that we will all experience and are experiencing, but the good news is that suffering, death, and evil do not win. Christ does. And the encouragement is to follow and trust in him and to hold on and to endure until the day that we get to receive the crown of life that he so graciously offers for all that are in him. Evil doesn't win, and we get to play a part in seeing evil once and for all eradicated in the truth and the love of Christ. Let's pray. God, you are a good God and a gracious God and a loving God who cares about justice. You care about our salvation. You care about our well-being. You care about evil, and you care about wrongdoing. And my prayer is that our church in this time would be a church that would listen to those who are grieving, that would speak out against injustices, particularly in this moment, the racial injustices that are coming to light, uh, things that have always existed, but for many of us are being exposed to for the first time or for maybe for the first time in a real way. And may we be a church 
that is not trying to excuse the pain of others. With me be a church that's not trying to explain away or say, well, what about this or what about that? Will we be a church that simply listens? God, we know that you hate evil and that you hate injustice, so much so that you will one day completely eradicate it as you establish your new kingdom in heaven and on earth, of which we get to be a part of because of your grace. And so my prayer is right now we would begin to practice and lean in and follow you in your pursuit of love, in your pursuit of justice. And we would be a church that listens well, that loves well, that's not afraid to take a stand for what is right. And we would be a a church that loves and puts the desires and needs of others in front of our own. My prayer is that you would speak to us powerfully during this time of tension and unrest and uncertainty of the future, that you would renew our minds and our spirits to you, and that we would be a church that doesn't just believe about Jesus in our minds, but follows him with our hearts and through our actions demonstrate the grace that you have given to us. Thank you for your love and for your grace and for giving grace to us when we don't deserve it. And God, may we be a people that fights for the justice that you so care about and that you've given us in your son. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for you. And in your great and amazing name that I pray, amen.